Welcome to the Generations Church podcast. This is Brian Nugent, and I'm the pastor at Generations Church. Thanks for listening today. We hope this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Hey, if you got your Bibles this morning, uh, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Uh, I'm doing a series on the Gospel of John. This is the second, the second uh, chapter. I'll be there in just a moment. So every year I try to do at least one expository message or you take a book and you work your way through it. And since I've been here, we've done like seven different books. But it's been almost seven years since we've done one of the Gospels. So we're going to work our way through the book of the, the Gospel of John. Now, my biblical responsibility to you is to preach the whole counsel of God. That means as many books, as many people, as many thoughts, concepts, letters, as I can get to you as broad as I can. So we're going to work our way through this book. So I just want to say, hey, uh, grab your Bible, grab a study guide, do something, and let's work through this book together as a church, get you a journal. I've got one book left over from last week. I gave away uh, this uh, study guide. Uh, if you'll come get it after church, I'll give it to you free of charge. So the Gospel of John, about 21 chapters, but he ends with kind of a thesis statement, uh, kind of summarizing the entire book. It said, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's telling you to those who aren't followers of Jesus, he's writing this book so that you'll believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but also that you may have life in his name. So it's not a historical book, book per se, but it is a transformational book that will bring life to you, he believes, when you read this book. So a few things about John and the Gospel of John. I did these last week. could be the last time I do it in this series. So if you missed, I want to give you these Really quick, things to know about John and the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was written around 80 to 95 A.D. and was the last gospel that was written. The author is John the Disciple, not John the Baptist, not John Jesus' half-brother, but John the Disciple. John was the younger brother of James, and they were called the Sons of Thunder by Jesus. You better look out when Jesus gives you a nickname, okay? All right, Sons of Thunder. Uh, he is the son of Zebedee and Siloam. He's the original member of Peter, James, and John. Remember, Jesus would pull away three on many occasions, and he's an original member there. Uh, but also, that gives us an insider view because a lot of things happened in the presence of uh, Peter, James, and John. He was raised in Galilee, probably the seaside town of Bethsaida, uh, probably kind of middle class, wasn't necessarily poor. It is likely he was in the fishing business with his father. We see that inferred on several occasions. The Gospel of John has more unique stories than other Gospels. So the, Mark was written first, and they say that Matthew and Luke uh, kind of used Mark as source material for their book. 
you know, we used to get in trouble with that in high school, but it's approved in the Bible, okay? So they just kind of used it as source material. So a lot of their stories are similar, and the writing style is similar, but the Gospel of John is different in the writing style and also <clears throat> and also the unique material, the stories. We're going to read about one, the wedding of Cana today, the woman in adultery, the prayer at Gethsemane in John 17. So there's there's more kind of unique material than the other gospels. And John has more theological teachings and explanations than the other gospels. We saw that in John chapter 1 where he led in with this great explanation of the purpose of Jesus last week. Then he gave some stories to kind of flesh that out. So uh, last week in John chapter 1, <clears throat> we talked about John's introduction and explanation of Jesus. If you'll remember, he used the theme of light. He kept using light. He wove that through the entire chapter. We looked at two days in the life of John the Baptist, and we looked at uh, Andrew and Nathaniel follow Jesus. So, John chapter 2 and verse 1, Jesus, 1 and 2, Jesus attends a wedding. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding also. So probably, if you look back to last week's chapter, this is the third day when it says the third day, probably the third day that he was in Galilee. Now, a few things that kind of just popped out to me as I read this, <clears throat> read this chapter. Number one, Jesus... I mean, excuse me, Joseph, Jesus' father, is not mentioned in the story at this point, okay? No mention of Joseph here going forward, okay? So somewhere between 12 years of age and 30 years of age, Jesus lost his dad, okay? Now, probably he died, life expectancy was very low, medical capability was surely not what it is uh, today, but... You know, uh, he, he could have left, but probably he died. So we know that at some point in Jesus' life, very early or later on, he grieved, he cried, he mourned, and he attended the funeral of his father, you know, or, or, or a parent. And then comes the reality to Jesus, because he's the oldest child that life changes for him. He's the oldest one. And with any, any family, when there's a, a parent that passes away, there's a, you know, the oldest child has to step in to responsibilities regardless of how old that they are. So there's a couple of things. Jesus, being the oldest child, had to help his mother raise the other kids. He was older, so for whatever, and we don't really even know the age, so there was, you know, more responsibility that was placed on his shoulders. He was probably like others who wanted to live carefree and go, you know, enjoy life, but now this life responsibility saddled with this life responsibility. He looks at other people his age, and they're out enjoying life and working and having fun, but Jesus has been pulled into family responsibility because of the death of his father. Also, another reality, the child of one, uh, one parent family, especially back then, we see it today, but especially back then, you know, they encountered poverty. We don't know how long Joseph, you know, Joseph had been dead. So we know that Jesus became a carpenter 
maybe not by choice of vocation or, or having the luxury of time to kind of ease into this as he would have liked. It was probably because they were poor. Most people were landowners and could farm. We don't see this as, a, as an option for Jesus as his family. So he probably... He's raising children before he wanted to or helping with children. He's probably working and giving part of his, you know, uh, uh, wages for the family expenses. And I just want to... I, I just want to say, you know, maybe maybe he's just walking through life and he's going, you know, uh, hey, I've got my life planned out. And you may feel the same way. i got my life planned out. And all of a sudden there's some unusual family issue that throws off my life plan. Somebody leaves, divorce, death, whatever, you know, and, and now you find yourself kind of changed. Even some people get a little bitter because of their, you know, their, their, their life circumstance. And you may feel that way this morning. You may look at other families on their social media and see the perfect picture. But at the same time, you look at family dysfunction or disruption and how it has changed your life. But I want to say something to you this morning. Life does not always seem fair, but God is always faithful. All right, life does not always seem fair, but God is always faithful. So there may be family disorder and disruption in your life, but I want you to know Jesus had that. Jesus had that as well. Maybe you lost someone that you love and your family was broken apart, death or divorce. I want you to know Jesus understands and he walked with he walked through that. As well, if you feel like your life plan has been disrupted because of family circumstances, Jesus probably walked through things, those kind of things as well. Listen to me this morning. If that is you, your life is not over even though your life has been impacted by family situations. Please remember, God has a plan for you. God is watching over your life. His eye is upon you. And when, it, and, and when, it, when you've been impacted by family disruption, know that God still has a plan for you, okay? We've seen that in our own church. Go talk to Natasha Hurt. Didn't, you heard her testimony up here. Didn't come from the perfect family, the perfect social media family. Had all kinds of family dysfunction, but God's blessed her life, okay? Look at Kim Shields. She sat on this, this stage, and she told her story about her family. Just, it wasn't, you know, just kind of an unusual situation, but God watches over people. When the, when, when the family life is not perfect, God is watching over you. I want you to know that this morning. And we're going we're gonna to have a time of prayer at the end for that as well. So, so the first thing, you know, like we don't even see Joseph. We see Mary. We're not sure who is getting married in this story, but Mary was invited and seemed to know the family well. And Jesus and the disciples had been, you know, invited too. So in the times of Jesus, weddings were community-wide events. Now you kind of close friends and family, but this is kind of city-wide kind of thing. It lasted for several days. So this is Cana. It's a very small town outside of Nazareth. So they just did like a 
community-wide celebration. There was food. There was friends. There was laughter. There was dancing. That's right. That's where we get the electric slide and the Cupid shuffle for our weddings. John chapter 2, all right? There was a feast. You had the big dinner. They kind of had the reception before, and then you had the, the wedding after that. And then you didn't go away for a honeymoon. Everybody in the wedding party walked you to the location of your honeymoon night, okay? Now, that'd be a lot of pressure with your scented candles and your Ed Sheeran playlist and everybody standing outside. They walk you through the, you know, walked you to, the, uh, to, the, to your home. And then over the, the next week, you entertain guests, you had meals together. So it was this big, huge celebration. So why is Jesus attending a wedding? Why is he, why is Jesus attending a wedding? I mean, he only had three years to establish his kingdom, and the clock is ticking. So what's he, what's he doing here, celebrating here? Doesn't he have things to do? I mean, he's got the weight of the world on his shoulder. He's got the burdens of the sin of all humanity upon his shoulders. I mean... Shouldn't he be praying? Shouldn't he be preaching? Shouldn't he be studying? You know, doesn't he have, in the light of the time that he is living, you know, aren't there other things that he should be doing in this moment? But here's a great example for us, that he lived a life of balance. He lived a life of balance. Yes, he had you know, shoulder the great burdens of all humanity, but yet he enjoyed the company of people. Jesus was not antisocial or uninterested in other relationships. He embraced life with joy and saw friendships and relationships as an important part of that. So, yeah, there were a lot of spiritual things. There were a lot of things he could be doing, but relationships were important to Jesus. It was part of his mission, not just preaching, not just the public part of his message, but getting to know and developing relationships and even stopping for a few days when he's only got a number of days. He stops for a few days to enjoy a wedding. You see, some people work hard and they have great responsibility, but they have no life at all. They make money, but they cannot enjoy it and they cannot enjoy their time off. And Jesus shows us the balance. Look what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes about, about this type of person. Here's what he says. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water, reservoirs to, 
to water the groves and the flourishing of trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of the kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In this, all of my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing. I denied myself uh, nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all of my labor, and this was the reward for all of my toll. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, what all I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gain under the sun. He said, I got it all. But there's no happiness in my heart. I work. I work hard. I've got all of this stuff. I've got more money and, than you would ever want. But he said, it's just meaningless. It's meaningless. Listen, listen. You can be a slave to your work. But your work becomes all-encompassing. It becomes your God. And there's no satisfaction from that. I'm just telling you, we can look at the life of Jesus who had great responsibility, but yet relationships were important as well. You know, you can do both. It's not a choice to excel in the corporate world, you know, or have a family and have healthy family relationships. You can do both. It's not a choice that you can walk up the corporate ladder, but that you can have deep and meaningful, meaning, meaningful friendships. It's not a choice. It's not a choice that you're successful in business and in life, but on Friday night, you have some friends over and you grill out and you play a few games and you enjoy life. It's not an either-or choice. You can do both. And Jesus modeled that for us at this wedding. Jesus' presence at the wedding also makes an important statement. Okay, So here's Jesus at, at the wedding. Because weddings, they were sacred and they were religious in nature, okay? It wasn't civil, like you didn't go get a license. You didn't go to the courthouse. This, at this point, it was kind of regulated and, you know, regulated by the, by the church, kind of handled by the, the, the local religious authorities. No license. They acknowledged this as religious. It was a creation of God. It was an institution of God. And Jesus sits here at this wedding, and this wedding looks a little different, excuse me, than the first one that he attended. This wedding, you know, it's got a bride and she's got the best that she can afford and the groom and there's music and celebration and community, you know, affirmation and but also it's still sacred. It's still holy, still asking for God's blessing. They realize this is not an institution of man, creation of man. This is a creation of God. This is a spiritual, this is a spiritual act. So before there was a preacher, he may be thinking back to his first wedding. Before there was a preacher and all this other 
stuff. There were just two people, and the sanctuary was the sky and the flowers and the trees. Before there was a license at the courthouse, God himself, in Genesis 2, officiated this particular wedding and did something spiritual in the heart that he still does today. He takes two people of flesh and he makes one heart and only God can do that. Only God can do that. You see, the civil world has grabbed this institution of marriage away from the church because they saw the social stability that it provided, that it was a foundation of societal flourishing. So the government kind of took this and said, we will, we will own this. But I want to tell you, the application from government has brought social chaos to the world. Instead of being a societal foundation, man, there is chaos today because of broken homes and, and, mar- and, the, and the, the twisting and, and, and changing the definition of what marriage should be. Marriage is sacred and holy. Whatever the government wants to say in its initial creation, it is sacred and holy. It is one man, one woman, and lifetime commitment of love and faithfulness to each other, regardless of what the laws of the land said. This is the way God instituted it and created it. And when there is, when there is misapplication, there's social chaos. There's social chaos. That's what we have in our country. You don't ever hear a politician talk about his plan for the family. How are we going to restore the family? Okay, You know, most people that are incarcerated today have had some kind of family disruption or dysfunction in their life in the past. Okay? All, all of our family, we're, we're all messed up. We're, we're all messed up because we have, we, we've taken this away from the church and we've rebranded it and we've twisted it and, and we've got a, a new definition of that today. But I want to tell you, that's why, you know, like, and, and you don't see people, politicians at all, dealing, you don't even hear it mentioned, dealing with the chaos that comes from broken families. You don't even hear that as a campaign, you know, campaign promise or a program or something. It's never mentioned. But as long as we keep allowing family disruption and family dysfunction, you'll see the social chaos that we see in the, in the country. And I want to say to young adults, because you're being raised with different definitions of what marriage is today, and I want to tell you and just want to remind you, this isn't a governmental creation. This is a creation of God. One man, one woman, sacred, holy lifelong commitment, and whatever you hear in college, whatever you see on social media, you know God's intention and God's God's favor rest upon that. Okay? All right? All right. I'm only on chapter, I mean, verse 3. Okay? All right? So, I know what time it is. I know the ice cream truck's already pulled up. You've already texted me. Okay? So, they're at this wedding. When the wine was gone, they've started this wedding. Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why 
Do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. So they're kind of at the end of the, the feast and the festival, and they have run out of wine. Okay, now let me just say this. When my daughters get married, okay, if we run out of food or beverages, it is not a time for a miracle. It is time for you to go home, okay? Okay? Just saying. Not going to be praying over anything. We're not shipping in pizza. I'm going to thank you for coming, okay? All right? Now, now look at Mary. Look at Mary. She's not bossy, okay? Uh, she just let him know of the need in a mother's kind of way, okay? She never asked him, okay? It's kind of like, you know, like a, at your mom's house, and she goes, man, this room sure needs to be painted. Sure needs a refreshing. I would do it myself, but I'm still recovering from the 36 hours of labor when I gave you birth without an epidural and your unusually large head. But you don't worry about it. I got this. Okay? So, so that's, look at that. The wine is gone. Jesus' mother comes, and he said, she just says, well, they have no more wine. You know, they have no more wine, you know. Now, what's interesting when she says this, like at this point, there had been no miracles. There is no precedent of anything that Jesus can do miraculously, you know, besides save people from their sin. So she just tells them this, but she was sensitive to the need that this could be very embarrassing to the family, okay? Maybe they weren't people of means, they were close friends, and you could understand at a reception, man, if you ran out of food, ran out of beverage, you know, and it was still still time. So she is very sensitive to the to the to the need, you know, to the need of the family. So this was not the planned place for Jesus' first miracle. Okay, this is not the first place where the first miracle was designed. But Jesus says, come on, mom, come on. So his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jesus for ceremonial, excuse me, used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Now, he had a couple of options here without, you know, messing up the original plan. Maybe they could have gone to a neighbor that was close by to see if they could borrow some. Maybe there was a, a vendor in the city, you know, maybe they, they could have done that. But, you know, he says, fill those ceremonial water pots with water. Now, now, just remember, there's no running water here. So having huge quantities of water indoors was just common, okay? And you saw these water pots, 20 to 30 gallons. 
they are they are big, you know. So that, that these things are these things are here, and also they're the ceremonial uh, pots where they cleanse themselves. So there's a couple of things that that this does that I want you to see. Of course, they got water to drink. They got water to drink from these pots every home. But also, these pots were ceremonial in nature so that there could be this purification and washing. It had kind of a spiritual tone to it. Jewish people, when they saw the ceremonial water pots, you know, in the homes, they knew there was a practical purpose, but they knew also that there was a spiritual purpose as well while, while, while these pots were, were there. So listen, because there's a message in what he's doing. There is the need of the moment, but there's another message in this that Jesus wants to convey. More than meeting the need of the wedding party was the message that Jesus had the answer for spiritual thirst and inner cleansing. Okay, He's using these ceremonial water pots. Number one, these water pots, they satisfied the thirst of the natural man, but it was also part of the Old Testament kind of cleansing and purification. So there's a message in here as well using these cleansing pots that he wants us to see. Okay, listen to me this morning. If you have spiritual thirst in your life and you look for all kinds of avenues to meet the need of your heart, you will always come up short because the only answer to spiritual thirst you will find in the person of Jesus. Later on in John chapter 7, he says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And when he drinks of this water, uh, rivers of living water will flow from them. Okay? He also has a message. He has a message for the the cleansing. They were trying to purify themselves spiritually, you know. So look, look look at Psalms 51. He says, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from all my sin. So they're trying to use a, an analogy that we understand like a bath, that you're, you're washing away dirt, okay? But here's the problem. You can't do that on the inside. You can't, you take, you can't take care of inner cleansing with, with, a physical, with a physical act. And Jesus, using these ceremonial pots, is just conveying to everyone that you can look All that you want to try to rid your guilt of things that you've done in your past, to try to find peace, to try to find forgiveness. You can go to a counselor and you can take medication and you can do, you know, you can meditate all you want. But the only answer to inner cleansing comes from the person of Jesus. And in this message, there is a, a wedding, you know, a wedding deed, but also there's a message here that your spiritual thirst and your inner cleansing and purification only comes through the person of Jesus Christ. Only comes through Him. You can look everywhere to find an answer to your spiritual thirst. You see, we're created with this space for God in our heart. 
this, this relationship with God, okay? And we can, we can try to find all kinds of other answers to meet those spiritual needs, but it only comes in the person of Jesus. He told them, now draw out some, take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from through the servants who had drawn, though the servants of the, who had drawn the water knew. He called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out choice wine first and then cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and the disciples believed him. Now, I don't know what the original plan was. This wasn't the original plan. I don't know what the original plan was for the first miracle. Maybe it was something like the fishes and the loaves, you know, that was kind of very, you know, very large. But here's Jesus. Get this. He changes the original plan because of the need of the parents of the bridegroom. Okay, watch this. There's no sickness, there's no disease, there's no death. They've run out of wine at a wedding. Jesus shows, he changed his plan because he cared about a family and a bridegroom having a really good day. Okay? Some people think Jesus doesn't care about little things in their lives. He's just a big, big, big God for the big stuff. I'm just telling you, he cares about the little things in your lives as well. He changed the original plan to just meet the need at a wedding. And he cares about the little things in your lives as well. The enemy will tell you he doesn't. I'm telling you he does. So at this wedding, the need was met. God's glory was revealed. Jesus' power was demonstrated, and I want to say it was in a creative way. It was in a creative way. Don't ever put God in a box on how he meets your need, okay? This was an unusual, create, unusually creative way, and the disciples were strengthened all at a wedding, all right? Let's look at verse 12. We'll, we'll close. Jesus visits the temple, John 2. After this, he went down to Capernaum, with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found the people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money, okay? All right, so everybody's in town for the Passover. This is kind of Jesus' first Passover as the, you know, kind of as he's made his public, you know, uh, uh, his self-known publicly that he is the Messiah. Now, when he comes up on the market, or excuse me, the temple, on the outside of the temple, you know, it's kind of like a flea market, you know, where you sell spaces to certain people. All right, so on the outside, you've got all these different Areas people are selling, you know, they're selling different things, and you know, uh, and a lot of times the prime location went to family members, and sometimes they would give kickbacks personally to the priests that were in charge. So, 
what exactly made Jesus angry? What exactly made him angry, you know, in this moment? Because Passover was a spiritual remembrance and celebration of God's deliverance. So everybody comes to Jerusalem and you come to the temple expecting this great remembrance of of God's deliverance from, from the book of Exodus. But yet, he finds something completely different when it comes to the temple. There were money changers that were there. People came from all over parts of Israel. They had all kinds of local and regional currencies. So the money changers were there so they could, you know, exchange money, which seems, you know, innocent within itself. But yet, man, they were doing it, you know, with exorbitant kind of rates. They were charging these poor people, and the people of the church were putting money into their pockets. They were set, selling animals set aside for the Passover sacrifice. So when you traveled to Jerusalem, you didn't bring your own sacrificial animals. It would be too hard to do that. So you just kind of bought them locally when you, you know, when you got there. And that would have been fine if they wanted to, you know, uh, you know, sell and, and help help the people, but yet they were making it very expensive and some people were being denied access because they did not have the money to buy the sacrificial emblems. Also, when you walk up to this glorious temple of Solomon, I don't know if you've ever been to the zoo, but there's a certain aroma that animals bring. All right? There are certain animal sounds There's certain animal smells. There's certain things that animals do. You know, so here you walk up to the temple expecting this wonderful Passover celebration and it smells horrible, selling everywhere, you know, just terrible. Why did Jesus get angry? Because of money changers selling animals for the set aside for the Passover celebration. And the church had lost its focus, its primary mission. The church had lost that. What would it be like if when we took communion, we sold the emblems for $50 per person? All right? Some could pay it. A lot couldn't per family. What if we sold slots to... To be baptized, you have to pay a fee. You have to pay 50 bucks or more if you want to be, want to be baptized. What if uh, to join the church, it's like $300 a, a family, okay? And here, here they are with these emblems of, of connection to the church, and they are selling them, Okay? Can I just remind you that you cannot sell salvation, okay? It is free. You can't sell forgiveness. You know, it is free. And I'll say too, you can't buy salvation either. With your time, your good deeds, your tithes, you can't buy it, okay? So he sees these things, and man, it makes him, it makes him upset. Look at verse 15. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, 
both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers. He overturned the tables. To those that sold the doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that in the Old Testament it's prophesied, zeal for your house will consume me. Can I remind you that Jesus loves the church? Jesus loves the church. He loves the church. He uses the term, you know, look what you're doing in my father's house. What if you walked into your parents' household and everything that they stood for and believed, something the opposite was going on in their house, okay? You'd be tossing some people out as well, right? You'd be throwing some people out. He's offended. And his father's house is all of this ridiculous, you know, ridiculous religious, religious practice. And I want to remind you too, when it comes to the church, that his name is on the church. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Christian church. So he, he also takes it, he takes it very personally. So the, the first great public act of Jesus' ministry was not a sermon But it was cleansing and purifying the temple, straightening it up, getting it back into its proper, proper focus. Can I remind you this morning that the church is a place of worship. It's a place where we come and we sing of God's goodness and sing of God's grace and, and we're, we, we sing about His mercy and we sing about the cross. The church is a place of prayer and communion. It's a place that we come to give close to God. The church is a place of salvation and redemption. The church is a place of outreach, evangelism, and missions. The church is a place for reverence for God because He's a holy God. The church is a place of preaching and proclamation of the good news. There is no place for ego. There's no place for superstars. There's no place for self-promotion. There is one star in the church, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one. He's the only one. He's, He's cleansing it, but reminding, we're reminding what our primary motive is. Now listen, this is the first of two times that Jesus has to remove the money changers from the temple. See, he comes back a few years later on the Passion Week and does the same thing. You think they would have learned their lesson the first time. It's only a few years later and he comes back again. Same scene. Same Passover, but they faulted back, defaulted back to this money-making operation where the worship of God and the salvation of people was not important. It was all about, it was all about personal, uh, personal profit. Just think what could have happened if all of those people came in for the Passover instead of all of this stuff that was going on. There was a choir singing worship and they were they were re- reading the the story of Moses and and this became a very spiritual moment it could have propelled some type of regional revival from the temple but yet 
Two times in about three years, they chose to default back to money-making and forgetting its primary, his primary mission. He didn't come to the temple for confrontation. He came to worship, pray, and meet God, okay? That's, that, he, didn't, he didn't come for any other reason. He's just going up to, to worship, okay? Can I just say this to you? Let's be mindful when people come to the church, okay? They don't see anything but worship, okay, and, and love and prayer. And he, he came up with one expectation, and he found something else. When people come to this house, let them hear the worship of God. When they come to this house, let them sense God's presence. When they come to this house, let them know that salvation is free to all. Let's don't let people walk away disappointed for what they found in this house. Brent, you guys can come. The Jews asked him after he did this, what sign can you show us to prove your authority? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. They said it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken was that of his body which he was raised from the dead, and the disciples recalled what he had said. And while they were in Jerusalem at the Passover, many people saw the signs he was performing, and they believed in his name. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. Why are you doing this? And he said, I'm going to destroy this temple, and in three days I'm going to raise it up. They misunderstood what he was saying. Okay? wasn't the physical temple that he was that he was talking about this was about his body okay you want a sign that god loves you you want a sign that god's watching over you that he cares sometimes we go well i didn't get the car i wanted that god must not love me i didn't get the job that i wanted that must be a sign i didn't get the house that I wanted, the shoes that I wanted did not go on sale, must be a sign. Let me tell you, He's given a sign. He's given you a sign that He loves you and that He cares about you. And it's greater than jobs or homes. He gave His life on the cross to show His love, His care, His provision for you, your purpose in this life and eternity, okay? All right? That's the sign. That's the sign. <laughs> That's why he came. Now, these guys took this sentence about the temple, and if you remember, they quoted that back to him at the cross. Remember that? He said he would tear down the temple and build it in three days. And they used that sentence, they misunderstood it in an accusatory tone. All while he was on the cross, he is living out what he said about his body being destroyed and in three days that he would be resurrected. Okay? They meant it as accusation, but actually... He's doing it right in front of his eyes. He's doing exactly what he said 
right in front of his eyes. If you're here today, you're watching online, and there's spiritual thirst in your heart, there's something down deep in your heart, and you can't find satisfaction, you know, for that. And we try all kinds of things by just have a, another relationship or a better relationship than everything in my heart is settled. We go think sexuality, it's all about that, and that there'll be, you know, our, our search for spiritual thirst will be answered. We try all range of things that can lead to addictions sometimes. We try money. We try everything we can to kind of fill the void of spiritual thirst that's in our heart. But I'm telling you, you'll keep searching and searching and searching. You'll try more and more and more. But I want you to know the answer to your spiritual thirst doesn't come from anything that can come from this earth. He said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. You'll drink of the waters that I give. And you'll never thirst again. That's, that was his promise. You got guilt. You want to be free. Conscience bothering you. You know, you want to find peace. You know, go to a counselor, meditation, whatever, trying to find that. But I'm just telling you, that it won't happen. The message of Cana was that all these spiritual needs can be found in the person of Jesus. Spiritual thirst inner purification, cleansing, all of that, it's found through the person of Jesus. Keep searching all you want, but I'm just telling you, you won't find it outside of the person. You won't find it outside of the person of Jesus. We're going to pray in just a moment. You're here today. You've been raised in an imperfect family. You know, you've had family disruption, family dysfunction, whatever, whatever that means. It's kind of thrown you off of your life plan and path. I'm going to pray over you this morning because I want you to know whatever happens, whatever happens, you know, so, sometimes we're not even responsible for this stuff. And whatever happens, I want you to know God's always faithful. God's always got another plan. He's watching out for you. Even if your family disintegrates, God has a plan. God has a plan for you this morning. God has a plan. Every head bowed, every eye closed. In fact, just stand with me this morning. Would you just stand? Just stand across the building. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Every head bowed, every eye closed. And if you're here today, your walk with the Lord is not where it should be. You've got some spiritual things going on. You feel some distance, distance in your life. And you just want prayer this morning. Just want prayer. Just say, Pastor, would you just pray for me today? My own spiritual journey. I'm not where I should be with the Lord. Really quick, would you just raise your hand up and down? Just say, Pastor, would you pray for me this morning? Yeah, I see. I see some hands this morning. That's great. That's great. Everybody's head bowed. I just want to pray. 
Maybe you're here this morning for whatever reason. You've had some family disruption in your life. I just want to pray over you. I just want to pray. But just real quick, raise your hand up and down. Just say, Pastor, that's me. That's me. I just had some family disruption in my life. And yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray over you this morning. I'm going to pray over you. Thank you, Lord. 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 They're going to sing a worship song in just a moment. I'm going to come back and pray in just a moment. But as they sing too, if you want to come find a place to pray, you feel drawn to come pray, somebody will come pray with you this morning. However you want to do that, I just want you to know, man, these altars are open to you. People will come and and, and spend some time with you. And then we're going to pray. They're going to put a prayer on the screen this morning. If this is you, if it applies to you today, I want you just to pray this prayer. If you're away from God, if you're distant, what, whatever. And this just kind of brings you back to, to the Lord. So I'm going to read it. And if that's you, maybe just mouth it to yourself this morning. Lord, I admit I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I accept your death as the penalty for my sin. And I recognize that your mercy and grace is a gift you offer because of your great love, not based on anything that I've done. Cleanse me and make me your child. By faith, I receive you into my heart as the Son of God and as Savior and Lord of my life. Help me to live for you with you in control. In your precious name, Jesus. And if that's you online here, man, that's that's all that it's needed to kind of square you up this morning with the Lord. Okay, that's what you that's what you need. I want to pray for those that that raised their hand. Man, you just come out of some family disruption. I just want to pray over you. So, Lord, I thank you that you're faithful. When life kind of spins out of control, you're faithful, Lord. There are many in our church watching online that have had imperfect families. They've had death. They've had divorce. They've had fighting, whatever it is. Maybe a younger person, Lord, that just feels the weight of all the family shifting that's going on in their life. But Lord, I pray today. I pray for those that have come out of this. Lord, I pray if possible Lord, that relationships can be healed and restored. I pray, Lord, for forgiveness. I pray for family reconciliation if that is possible. But even if it's not possible, Lord, I pray. I pray because you've got a plan. You've got a plan. Lord, you walked through it yourself. You grieved at a funeral of your father. And Lord, I pray. I just pray for those this morning. Lord, who've just gone through some upheaval in their family. Lord, there may be some bitterness in their heart. There may be some hurt and rejection. But Lord, you know what they're walking through. And I just pray over that today. I pray the calming and healing grace of Jesus, Lord, would, would minister in their hearts today. And Lord, I just give you thanks. I give you thanks in Jesus' name. Let's do that chorus again, Jaira. Can we sing that today? Thank you, Lord. 
Thank you for listening to the Generations Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message today and pray God's greatest blessings on you. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter.